Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests that we've spoken to on JM in the AM. Rabbi Shai Graucher, he compiled the brand new book from Artscroll of Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim. Check out artscroll.com, 10% off and free shipping every time you use promo code radio. Check out the brand new book of Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim. My conversation with Rabbi Shai Graucher on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. If you go to artscroll.com and you search Rabbi Shai Graucher, uh, you are going to find a lot of works. Rabbi Shai Graucher is a young man who has um, really compiled some incredible svarim, some wonderful books at this point. I do want to remind our listeners, when you go to artscroll.com, no matter what you order, uh, make sure to use promo code radio. Always use promo code radio. You'll get your 10% discount. You'll get your free shipping. Always use promo code radio at artscroll.com. Uh, when you look up Rabbi Shai Graucher, you'll find the palace on 5 Chazon East Street. Pictures, pearls of wisdom, and stories in the life of Avaron Leib Steinman. You'll find the Igeris Hagra, and I, of course, being the eighth generation from the Vilna Gon, that's extremely significant to me. It's the Vilna Gon's ethical letter with an anthology of insights, stories, and observations, Igeris Hagra. Uh, you will find the Ushpizin book about the seven guests in the sukkah. Uh, you'll find Rav Chaim Kanievsky on Chumash, which I believe is complete. I believe it's Bracious Shmos, Vayikro, Midbar, and Dvarim. We'll ask Rabbi Graucher about that coming up. I believe that is totally complete. You'll find Rav Chaim Kanievsky on Zmiros. That's something we spoke about on the air back at the uh, beginning of this season uh, when it was released in September of 2020. And now today, and now today available to you, officially released this past Monday, is Rav Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim, compiled by Rabbi Shai Graucher. It's an Arts Girl series, Jaffa Family Edition. It is a absolutely beautiful work. Um, had an opportunity over the last couple of days to uh, go through a good part, portion of it. And uh, Rabbi Shai Graucher is with us live via telephone on this Wednesday morning. Rabbi Graucher, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How does someone... Your age, relatively young in the in the in the uh, the world of uh, of Sfarim and Torah. How does someone your age become someone close enough to Rav Chaim Kanievsky to literally become the compiler of his amazing works? Um, I think in Hebrew we say "en davar when a person wants something and. And he pushed for it, and Hashem, Hashem gives siyata dishmaya. I wasn't, I wasn't born in Bnei Brak. My father used to be a big singer. You probably had a long time with him. Yes, for just for and, the for the since you brought it up for the context of our uh, for our listeners, um, Rabbi Shai Graucher's father is Deddy, the incredible superstar and unbelievable Baal Chesed, who for decades did so much amazing, great work in the world of Jewish music. Go ahead. You grew up in which city, you were saying? In Petah Tikva. Right. And I used to go to camps in America. But one day, one day I went to Reb Chaim. I was 15 years old. One of my father's friends took me. Baruch Hashem, we grew, we grew, I grew in a house that Chesed and Emunas Chachomi was, was the two biggest things. Right. My father, every single question, he used to go to a rabbi, his rabbis, and ask him, and get an answer. So I went to Rav Chaim. I was 15 years old. I didn't learn yet. And I saw the Rav, and I felt something I can't 
explained it was something very special. And the Rav gave me a bracha, bracha v'atzlocha. And then he looked at me and he says, you should sit and learn. Tishevet ilmad. So I, uh, I wasn't learning at all. I said, what to do? So he told me, write. Lichtov, tichtov. To write Kiddush Torah. Whoever knows Reb Chaim, since he was very, very young, he used to write. And Baruch Hashem, he has a lot, a lot, a lot of for him. And then I used to go um, sometime. I went to Yeshiva. And every Bein Azmanim, I used to go to Reb Chaim's house. I used to wait hours and hours just to see him. But I got close to the Rebbeton. I used to help her with the, with the pots, go in the kitchen, <laughs> try to be nice, try to help her with, with chesed that she was doing. And then, Baruch Hashem, I heard when I was getting closer and closer that they were trying to do Rav Chaim Kanievsky stuff in English. Right. It's first safer, or Yosher, that you forgot to mention that this is the whole starter of Rav Chaim Kanievsky in English with art school. For 12, 13 years, they were trying and trying. Which, which, one, which one is that? What, what would we call that, or how would we refer to it in English? Or Chos Yoisher. Which is? Reb Chaim wrote on, on Musser, on 30 Musser. subjects. Got it. That he wrote, and this is the powerful, most powerful things. And I was trying for four and a half, five years to get a permission. And I remember one day when I asked, and he said no, and no, and no, and I told, I told the Rov, the American people want to understand because every single house I used to go in America, there's a black safer or Yosher. Everybody used to get it for their bar mitzvahs. So everybody had it. But a lot of people that I asked them, they never opened it because they didn't really understand what is written inside there because right. everything is Kimat Chazal. Right. So we took this and we added 150 stories and every single subject, we have stories to understand that it's not only what Reb Chaim is writing, He's also living this life. It's not just what he's talking or writing. This is Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And I remember I called uh, Rav Gedalia Zlatowicz from art school that without him, nothing would work. When I picked him up from the airport, first time I met him, my father made, made the introduction. We started a Igeris Agro that also Rav Chaim and Rav Steyman, the Chetzadik Livrochov, pushed me. I used to go every year for the yard side. The Vilna Goins Kaver now COVID it was wasn't easy to miss it, and then we started. And I remember him. He told me you can get it done, and he pushed me with Gedalia, and I was pushing with Chaim until Baruch Hashem. I remember the first phone call when I called him. I said we have an approval. We didn't wait a second. This day we got already Avrechim, a whole crowd of Talmidei Chachomim, a lot of grandchildren of Reb Chaim to get up the stories, to get the best translator, and Baruch Hashem it was done after. Three months, and and yesterday I was in every yeshiva I go. With, if, if, if it's American, everybody's sitting and learning this Orchus Yosher, and it's a it's, it's a very big safer Musa today. By the way, folks, we just found it on the website Orchus Yosher of Chaim Kanievsky's classic guide to a Torah life. It was released in the uh, middle of 2018, and you could find it at artscroll.com, and that's what Rabbi Graucher is referring to. And when you say the Vilna Gaon's yard side, the Vilna Gaon's yard side is Cholamoid Sukkis, no? Yeah. So you, yeah. Used, you used to go Cholamite Sukkis to his kever? No, I used to, I used, so I used to go, what we used to go is, we, because Sukkis, it's, we used to go to the Chofetz Chaim's yard site. Right. A, a week before Rosh Hashanah. Right. And then we used to travel with, to the Chofetz Chaim and the Goen in the same time. Well, interesting. At the same time, and, and as you, as, and as you heard me say, I'm, I'm a product of the Vilna Goen, so 
<laughs> so wow. it's, it's really meaningful. One year, every year on uh, on Cholamoid Sukkot, there's a family get together uh, in Israel in memory of the Vilna Gon. And one year, because I was there for Sukkot, Baruch Hashem, I had the opportunity to actually be there. Uh, Rabbi Shai Graucher is with us. So it, it's amazing. I mean, again, I don't make, want to make too big of a deal of it, but you know, you're a young man. Uh, you went ahead, and as you said, you you insisted on on studying at the at the feet of a Torah giant, and you uh, and you beca- because of the ability, thank God, you know English. Frankly, if not for your yeah. ability, if, if not for the fact that you know, <laughs> if not for the fact that you know English, you wouldn't be in this in this arena right now. Uh, and that uh, relationship with uh, Rabbi Zlotowitz over at Art Scroll. Uh, and the acquiescence, Baruch Hashem, of Rav Chaim Kanievsky to your request to get his materials translated into English, all that together put you as a, in a very important role in this whole process. Yeah, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. But I'm telling you, this is, all came from a lot of davenings, a lot of mysterious nefesh. To be here, there was days I slept in the car outside Rav Chaim's house just to ask him a question, just to see him. But whoever goes to Rav Chaim's house sees that it's, it's something that that is more than any any anything in the world. It's it's like it's like you can't you can't explain it. And Baruch Hashem, the whole idea here that that everything is what we write it's in Hebrew. I do the Hebrew job. We have Rabbi Wagner from Lakewood, Talmud Chacham, that he is the one who's translating. But every single word, Rav Chaim and his son Rav Shaul are going through and to be medayik, and to bring the real, 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 real stories, the real Divrei Torah, the real Chidushim to the world. And Baruch Hashem, we see a tremendous Yat Dishmaya. When, 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 when was the most recent time you saw him? Can you see him during COVID? With Chaim, I try to go every single day, even when it was locked, and Baruch Hashem had Yat Dishmaya to be there every day. And I mean, I mean, you, you you just arrived from Israel yesterday. Did you see him over the last few days? I see him. Uh, I see him every day. Every day. Every day I go. I don't leave without a bracha. I don't go without a bracha. I don't. And there's questions every day. I get phone calls and emails at least thirty to fifty a day. People that need Yeshuas. People that need brachas. People that need advice. People that are are unshid, don't have shidduchim or people without children. Every single day. And there's a big shlichus, and Baruch Hashem, most 95% of the people are people from America, yeah. from Canada, from Manchester. Right. It's all the American people and English people that sometimes it's maybe hard to get, and it's a big achrayus, because right. every word by Reb Chaim is like, Malach Hashem Tzavokas. But I want to tell you something interesting that I tell every every single person that is, comes to me or wants to ask a very, very hard bracha or a serious Question. So in the Orchus Yosher, on Ruach HaKodesh, Reb Chaim writes there that a lot of people go to Gdoyim or Talmidei Chachomim. When, when does a person get the special Siyat Dishmaya? When a person has a, mun, a pure Munas Chachomim, that whatever the Tzadik is going to tell him, so then HaKudosh Baruch who gives the Siyat Dishmaya, Reb Chaim writes, that the Tzadik, Hashem brings him the right answers to give it to that person. Because it's very interesting. I can go to Reb Chaim, with eight questions, the same question, the same question, and he can answer each one a different answer. And there's a letter from five years ago that someone wrote to Reb Chaim. How come when you come to Shaduchim, this one you tell him, learn Barachas, this one you tell him, say Tehillim, 
This one you tell him, do zaka. This one you tell him, give money to yeshiva. So Reb Chaim wrote eight letters. That's the answer. Whatever comes to my mouth from above, that's what I answer. Right. And you can see it every single second. This is something, I don't, think, I don't know if there's something like this in the world, that you can come and each one gets a different answer and each one takes the answer to a different level. I just had a story with this family that were, the mother was sick, the child was sick. Reb Chaim, I went. They begged me. I went, and Reb Chaim said to learn brachas, to learn brachas. And this family didn't just learn brachas. They made a seum of brachas every single day. And the doctors didn't know what to do. I think of the 30, maybe it was 32 days. After 33 days, they called me. And the doctor said they can go home. But they took Reb Chaim's bracha, learning brachas, and they did a seum of brachas every single day. Now, it wasn't just learning. Yeah. They had a pure emunah sachomim, and I told them, you'll have, and you'll see Yeshua. Rabbi Shai Graucher is with us. Um, I have to believe that in addition to the emunah sachomim that you just described, and the faith that one has to have that a Torah giant and someone like Rav Chaim Kanievsky is giving them not only good advice, but as you described it, advice specifically for them, in addition, after reading the introduction to your Sefer, to the one you compiled about Rav Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim, I have to believe that he would strongly recommend that in addition to what you just said, people should take tefillah very, very seriously, and people should incorporate Tehillim. You don't always associate Tehillim with Torah giants. You don't always associate Tehillim with those who spend most of their day you know, in the Yamshal Talmud so to speak, in the ocean of the Talmudic studies. But I would have to assume, based on the introduction of your book, that Rav Chaim would strongly recommend that individuals and families in distress turn to Tehillim and recite them as much as possible. Yes, 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 100%. Rav Chaim is telling, and he told me a few times when I asked him, I had the supposed to be by him Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah this year, and every day by Asesh Yemei Tshuva, that Rav Chaim takes the Tehillim every single day from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and he finishes the whole Tehillim. To see Reb Chaim saying Tehillim these days, I'm telling you, it's like to see an angel, and you see the Pachad, you see the, the, the Koyach. And what happened two weeks ago, Friday night, Reb Chaim was sitting and learning all day, and he was davening Nate. After Shachris, he was a bit tired. He went to rest. He goes to his grandson, Rav Gedalia Onigsberg, and he tells him, please bring me to Hillen to bed. So he told him, uh, 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 he told him, Saba, Saba's resting now. So he told, please give me the safer Tehillim to the bed. And whoever knows Rav Chaim, like, like he has his Seder of Torah, of learning, he has also Seder Tehillim every day. But to ask in such a way, it, 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 was, it was strange. Reb Chaim was sitting, uh, sitting, laying down in his bed, and he's starting to say Yerotzoim before Tehillim, and he says the whole entire Sefer Tehillim, Perig by Perig. Reb Chaim doesn't just say every single word. He has his hands on the Tehillim, every single word, and he's saying it, and he's finishing it. So Reb Gedalia saw that he's saying the whole Sefer. He told him, Saba, maybe you should be Mechavin, 
that COVID-19 is going to leave Klal Yisrael, is going to leave the world. So Reb Chaim looked at them and told them, It's true. That's why I finished the whole tale and now. And for Reb Chaim to finish another time the whole safer a year, it means that, that we have to grab Tehillim. We have to take the Tehillim by us. And you know what? It's not just waiting. People should be in hospitals. People shouldn't feel good. You can take, we can take Tehillim every day. A person can take Tehillim every day, one chapter, two chapters, to be connected. And Baruch Hashem, today with this amazing Tehillim that's coming out, people can also understand more the wording, understand more the stories, the things that David the Melech was saying. He didn't have, a, he didn't have an easy life, but, but we see whoever is close to Tehillim, whoever finishes Tehillim, it's, it's, it's a different world. It's and- like It's like... And I should point out that Rabbi Shai Graucher has included in this Tehillim the schoolers that both Rav Chaim and his Rebetzin recommended in terms of what chapters of Tehillim to say for an easy and healthy pregnancy, to be blessed with children, for a shidduch, for parnasa, for good health, uh, against Ayin Hara, if one has tremendous anxiety. Those are included, the recommendations by Rav Chaim and the Rebetzin about which Prakim of Tehillim to say. Also, uh, I don't know if it was clear, because I'm not sure if you were alluding to this when you mentioned uh, uh, Reb Chaim saying Tehillim earlier. He actually said Tehillim, and says Tehillim, I guess we could say, from a cloth, from a from an actual parchment scroll. Am I right? Yeah, Reb Chaim one day made a big seum in Letterman's show. He got Tehillim from cloth, and he, he was so happy that day. He wrote in his own handwriting an invitation for the seum of Ksivas Tehillim from cloth. And of course, he says also, he told me a few weeks ago, even benching, he says when a person is saying things from a cloth, there's more gedusha. It's, it's, it's much more pure. That's why he took Tehillim, and he really wanted to have Tehillim from cloth. Today, it's much harder for him to say from the cloth. Right. But so one second. He used to I, say it from cloth, and it I, used to be a very, very big thing. So I need, I, I need to understand a couple. Of, did you just say he says Birchus Amazon from a cloth? Is that what you just said? He said, he says, he says, sometimes he says it's from class. And the other thing is, th- there's a whole thing that you write about whether one should say Tehillim at night or not. And you just described how, you know, he said it in the middle of the night. What, what's, what's the, generally speaking, I know obviously there are exceptions. Generally speaking, what, what, what would he say about saying Tehillim at night? Uh, this, I'll tell you the truth. Now, now, now with COVID, I think there's no time. There's no time. There's no time. <laughs> no time you, you to waste. We, we, say tell him immediately. <laughs> That's true. We need to say it. We need to say it. Um, always. Yeah, we need to say it always. But of course, he says that when a person is reading from a sefer that that it was written from from a from a class has a dusha, and the davening is more miskabel. This is the whole point. When you daven from such a thing, the davening is uh is more mis- miskabel. That's right. what he. You really understand. But it's interesting also that Rav Chaim, when he was a bocher in yeshiva, that already the Tehillim was a big thing because on, on Yemei Adin, Roshani, Yom Kippur, he had three Kabbalahs this time. Shmira Sadibur, watch his mouth. Second thing, he used to give pruta for tzedakah every day. Mamesh pruta, he didn't have money. And the third thing, he used to say every single day the Tehillim, when he was a bocher already. But when he came to the yeshiva, he said, the tiny zebra he couldn't continue doing because the Rosh Hashiva and the Rebbeim used to come and ask him questions like, what are you talking to Reb Chayu about? 
And he says, and money, even money didn't have anymore. But the only thing with Yeshiva that he was continuing, he used to finish Tillit every single day. And he used to go on the roof of the Yeshiva, on the roof of the Yeshiva. And the Rosh Yeshiva used to say, what is, what is Rav Chaim doing there on the roof? So you see already as a bacher. Wow. I'm saying we can learn Torah, and it's very, very important. But we need a lot of siyata dishmaya. We need a lot of praying, a lot of... And, and Baruch Hashem, this is what I see by Rav Chaim, besides the tremendous midas, tremendous chesed. Everybody, everybody, I see that the siyata dishmaya of davening and, and, and praying to Hashem word by word, like like Oni Bafesach, I, I, I see it by Rav Chaim, to see him davening Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, it's like... Uh, you can't explain it. You, 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 mamish can't explain it. The, 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 the it's an angel. You know, it, there's nothing it. better in the world. I hear it. All right, Shai Graucher is with us. Go to artscroll.com. Go to artscroll.com. First of all, you should search the words Shai Graucher. You'll see all the works that he's responsible for, specifically the ones uh, of based on Rav Chaim Kanievsky's incredible works. The brand new one is the Jaffa Family Edition of Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim. It's amazing. If you have any affinity toward Tehillim at all or want to want to develop an affinity, you have to get this. You have to get it. And remember, our listeners benefit from uh, tuning into this show. Go to artscroll.com. Use promo code radio. Go to artscroll.com. Use promo code radio. 10% off free shipping when you use promo code radio. Rabbi Shai Graucher, I'm going to put you on the spot but I'm going to give you a minute to think. I'm going to tell you my favorite Pasuk in Tehillim. I don't know how many Pesukim are in Tehillim. I know there's 150 chapters. There's got to be thousands of Pesukim. I have a favorite, believe it or not. And I went specifically to that favorite and my second favorite to see what Reb Chaim says about it, and I have to share it with the audience. I hope you don't mind. And then I'm going to ask you if there's a specific Pasuk and a Vart by Reb Chaim on one of the Pesukim of Tehillim that you'd like to share with us, okay? Okay. My favorite. Uh, look, it's no, it's no secret, and I believe that I could say this accurate. I think this is an accurate statement. If one would say what's the most important pasuk from Tehillim that we say every day, I think we've been led to believe, rightfully so, over the centuries, that it's poseach esyadecha umaspia lechol chayratzon. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. My favorite pasukim in Tehillim are the ones that precede that very well-known Pasuk. And they are, And when I give my speech about tefillah, when I give my speech about prayer, when I'm asked by a synagogue or a, or a youth group or a school to come and speak about prayer, I always talk about these Pesukim and how people need to make these Pesukim their own. Hashem supports all the fallen ones. And straightens all the bent ones. So what does Rav Chaim say on this? Which I really, I love this part. He says, in Perak Shira, we're taught that this is the song of the snake. Rav Chaim explained that the snake was cursed, that it must crawl on its belly, right? We know that from Bracious. At the same time, Hashem arranged that its food be readily available wherever it goes, based on a Gemara and Yoma. From this, we are to learn how Hashem supports even those who he brings down. And I, I, I just think that's brilliant. I, I, I'd love it. <laughs> not, not that Reb Chaim needs my haskama, <laughs> but I think it's an amazing way of approaching that pasuk that even when Hashem gives the greatest curse to someone that they have to suffer 
by being on the ground their entire life, he makes sure that they're taken care of. So that's the first one I wanted to mention. The second one I wanted to mention is the next pasuk. Ene chol elecha yusaberu Everybody looks to you with hope, and you give them their food in its proper time. I think it's so important for these times that people understand that bi'ito is such an important part of that pasuk. And he writes, in many places, the fact that we're wholly dependent on Hashem is referred to in relation to our eyes. Rav Chaim explained that eyesight is one of the portions Hashem gives a person. Moreover, the Chavetz Chaim writes that it is not the eyes that see, but the soul that gazes through those orbs. So Chol has a much deeper meaning than just being a, a reference uh, to the uh, human eye. So I, I just I, I, I wanted to share those two because, like I said, those are my favorite psukim in, uh, in Tehillim. And those of you who are wondering about Poseach HaSedecha, Rav Chaim asks, how can we say Poseach HaSedecha that you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing? We see many living things that are suffering in poverty. How can we say that Hashem is satisfying their desires? And the answer is, Rav Chaim explained that the Gemara in Erechim teaches us that any ill that befalls a person, even something so slight as withdrawing the wrong coin from his pocket, goes toward forgiving his sins. Each living creature has all its desires satisfied, but some of that largesse goes toward expiating their sins. This is the greatest kindness imaginable, as Chazal teaches us, that one who had his coat taken from him to satisfy his debt should sing as he walks home, for he no longer owes anything. I thank you for letting me do that, Rabbi Graucher. Amazing. <laughs> could you could you share with us a vart that you remember? I know I know it's not in front of you, just to be fair, because we we, we had the delivery of the brand new Rav Chaim on Tehillim, and you haven't yet, but is there something you remember that you'd like to share with us? Um, we say it was, it was, uh, it was now Halil. Maybe we'll say something from Halil. Sure. Yes, please. We, we we wanna we we wanna all say halal already, right? When COVID is gonna be is over. gonna be over, Bezas Hashem. Right. So, um, so um, when it was Tet Tammuz in Tashreish Nun Tet, it was a city Tishan um, that the 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 Chaim Peres Kanievsky Yaakov Israel, and they, they called him the Stipler, was 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 called the Stipler. He was he was. He was born, he was living in the city or in a stipler that he came from a yeshiva bocher. And when he's a little child, little child, he was, he was sick with the, I don't know, in English, the machalata typhus. It was a sickness. Typhus, typhus. That, right, typhus. Typhus, typhus. And it was very, very hard that day. People really, really didn't get out of it. But the schus of the tefillah was standing for him. And he, Mamish got out of this. But one thing was saying to him, that his hearing, till the end of his day, that he, he, he was suffering from hearing the cipher. Right. That's what, as so, so Reb Chaim says, that people were saying, when I heard it, and Reb Chaim, um, that this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted him to hear what he's hearing. But the chesed that he did with him, that he was, he was, he was, he was giving him the ability not to hear things that he's not supposed to hear. Wow! But this was, but this was the kigover aleinu shem chazdoi. This was the chesed that he did. That all his children in those times, and uh, eventually we know if the stipler chazdoi shalom, 
would, what would happen if it was all, with, with all the kids in this in this city, we wouldn't have Reb Chaim today. So I think the 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 of the generation, the continuation of 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 of, of miracles that Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave this Kanievsky family, and it's already generation, and also their uncle the Chazanish, and it's going till today. The Reb Chaim that and, and the, fa- the whole, and the father-in-law. And the father-in-law, and the father-in-law, Rabbi Yoshi. We right. have also stories from Rabbi Yoshi, right. of course. And the Rebbeton, and the right. Rebbeton. Right. How much Chesed, the Rebbeton. How much Tehillim. I have, I have something. She used to give every single lady the, the the, the small capital, ten capital Tehillim right. for easy pregnancy. The the estrog jelly. Right. Till today, till today, she's not with us, but her ruach, the Rebbeton's koyach, is following and giving. Till today, the the all the ladies and everybody, big chizukim. It, it doesn't end when a person is close to Torah. When a person is close to the real things, it never ends. It just it grows and grows and grows, and it's never going to end. It's never going to end. Baruch Hashem, we're working now on a very very special sefer, Ella Dalad Omer It's a picture sefer with all the nuggets and alochas from Reb Chaim Kanievsky. We're 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 working now on Shmita. Reb Chaim on Shmita. And everything so is going to be Shemitah, and Reb Chaim is waiting for this. And 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 really, 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 I asked them, I said, we're working on it. When, maybe Mashiach will come. Maybe Mashiach will come after Shemitah. Motzei Shvi ben David Ba. So Reb Chaim was smiling and looked at me. He says, he says maybe, but we have to daven for this. He said, yep. he, he said maybe, but he says we have to daven for this. And that includes and, uh, includes saying Tehillim, of course. Rabbi Shai Graucher, everybody, he's with us. Go to artscroll.com. The brand new of Chaim Kanievsky on Tehillim is amazing. Uh, always use promo code radio at artscroll.com. You'll save, plus you'll get free shipping. Check out all the works by Rav Shai Graucher. Um, by the way, as, as I conjectured earlier, the, the Chumash is complete, right? All five volumes, right? Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Chumash is complete. Chesed Hashem. Chesed Hashem. The Chumash is, is uh, really, I, uh, I got yesterday a phone call from a person that called me. That he wants to order to him, and he told me, by the way, you should know, I, I bought thirty sets by Arskol of the whole Chumash, <laughs> and I give it as a bar mitzvah gift. Wow! The whole set, yeah. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, well, they say that you are one of two people that have the easiest access to Reb Chaim. You and Reb Chaim's grandson. Would that be accurate? Nah, there's more. I'm not. There is more. <laughs> there are others in that there, category. <laughs> there's people. There's people that are there before I was born. Well, once one. Once one of my listeners this morning already asked for your email address. I said to myself, "Oh boy, they all think the only way to get to Reb Chaim is through Rabbi Grauker." <laughs> no, there's a lot of ways, but I'm happy. I'm happy. Whoever needs an Aitza can send me an email. It's a big. It's my biggest pleasure. I feel the shlichus, and special for the American people because. It's, it's sometimes it's much harder right. when a person sends you an email in English. Right. So I translate it and I give it to the rov and I answer. But there's a lot of good people, and Rav Chaim is as a uh, open house for the Gansiklali soil. I the world. hundred percent. I and I and for that listener, you can relax. I'll make sure to email you Rabbi Graucher's email uh, at some point today. Bezrat Hashem. Um, listen, uh, Reb Shai Graucher, first of all, best regards from, uh, our friends at Camp Masora. They, uh, <laughs> they take, they take great pride in the fact that you were, that you were there years ago. 
Uh, and I'll tell you, I, you know, as somebody who, who knew you casually many, many years ago, I, I can only imagine the nachas that your family is getting because I take great pride in the fact that uh, I knew you when and that you have developed into this incredible conduit for such important uh, Torah projects from, from the person recognized, frankly, uh, as the Gadol Hador at this point. And it's, it really gives us tremendous pride. So I just want to give you Yashakoch. I want to give you, Thank you. A, a bracha that you can take. It sounds like you're going full steam ahead. It sounds like you got you have plenty of projects you want to get We're done. We're not stopping. <laughs> I, I told Rav Lanowitz yesterday, we have a code, me and him. We are just warming up. It's all warming up. We're not stopping. Give me, but give, I want, I want to, Yeah, go ahead. I want to just to, to, to give a shevach oda to Reboi Shaloilam for having such a schus, such a schus to bring and, 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 and to give the people the, the, the Rav Chaim Kanievsky on Chomesh, on Zmiro Shabbos. I'm telling you, a lot of people are calling me that their Shabbos table was, was changed, was changed. And I had the schus to spend Shabbos table by Rav Chaim singing the Zmiros. So I think one of the best things that we, we, should, we should work on ourselves, you know, sometimes we're tired, Shabbos is coming, but Rav Chaim told me a lot of times, to make a, 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 a Shabbos Suda with, with the Zmiras, to understand what we're saying, to sing it together, to be together. And this is very important. I'm thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that Baruch Hashem, and I'm, with the thanking, I'm asking that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should give me the koiches to continue, and we should be zoiche, that Rav Chaim, Moran Saratoira, should Bezrat Hashem live till 120, and Bezrat Hashem, with our soul, we should be zoiche, to do many, many more things. I want to thank my parents, for, for, for helping, for davening, for giving me the best, best, best things to be able to do it. And, of course, my wife and my children that are, are behind everything. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thanking them. Well, our best regards to your family. Like I said earlier, um, uh, your family and specifically your father, because we know him best of your entire family, inspired so many people around the world with so much chizik and so much chesed, and it's just, I'm telling you, the nachas that your parents must have uh, from from what you're doing must be amazing. Uh, big yeshikach, thank you so much for joining thank us you. this morning, and continued hatzlach haraba. Thank you, thank you very much. Rabbi Shai Graucher, this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and alchemsegal.com, on the alchemsegal network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Shai Graucher. Next up, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. We had an, a comprehensive discussion about the UAE and its related Jewish communities of the Gulf. Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, my guest on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Tuesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM on this 16th of February in the 4th of Adar. Well, with all the uh, association we've had with the UAE over the last few months, especially with our big trip in December and being in touch with people there over the uh, airwaves over the last couple of months. Uh, it, it is amazing to me that we haven't had the opportunity till today, and I'm so glad we have this opportunity today uh, to give a tremendous amount of uh, credit and to laud the accomplishments of Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Rabbi Sarna, of course, has been such a key figure in the uh, UAE, and uh, the news is that as Jewish life continues to flourish and grow in the Gulf, the local Jewish communities of, listen to this, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE 
have come together to share resources by forming the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities. Rabbi Yehuda Sarna is the honorary chairman of the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities. Rabbi Sarna, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Well, it's great to be here. And if you would have told me a year ago that the <laughs> pandemic would help create uh, a linkage, a connection between Jewish communities and the Gulf, I would have told you you were crazy. But sure enough, I mean, it was just uh, a little under a year. I was on Grand Street, Anachem, right, right, not not far from your studio in the in the kosher store, yeah, and purchasing boxes, uh, cases of grape juice to ship over to to the UAE, along with matzos that I had FedEx. Uh, and 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 to provide for for Jewish uh, people in the UAE, and sure enough, as we put out this call, you know, who needs matzah? Who needs grape juice? We started getting requests from people in Qatar, from people in Kuwait, from people in Bahrain, from people in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, from all over the Gulf, and 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 just uh, um, you know, in the, those following weeks, as we started doing our you know these Zoom calls every you know before Shabbos every week. You know, we have people logging on from all over. And so in many ways, this is just this association is a natural outgrowth from uh, the the darkness of the pandemic. The, the point being, I just want to make sure this is clear to everyone, the point being that you're making that without that initial effort during the pandemic to, to you know, in a very long-distance manner, <laughs> help the Jews of the UAE, without that initial effort, there would not have been this collaboration which formed through all these Jew- different Jewish communities of the Gulf afterward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely, and it's been beautiful oh, to yeah. see how each community, actually, it's not just about matzah and grape juice, right. you know, but how each community is bringing its own unique resources to help the other. The, the Jewish community in Bahrain is the historic Jewish community. I mean, it's mm-hmm. been there for 150 years. They have a synagogue that's been there, they have a physical building, they have a cemetery that's been there. They're also citizens of the country of Bahrain, which is not the case in the other Gulf countries, where Jews are there either as residents, you know, t- residents or as expats. And it, it really is the, um, you know, in many ways, the, it's, it's each community bringing what it has to help the other. Well, I'm glad that Grand Street had a role in all that. Pretty amazing. Uh, Rabbi Sarna, as you know, I mean, it, it, with my very, very limited familiarity with the Jewish communities of the Gulf, uh, the one, because of the two-day trip, the one that I have somewhat of a familiarity with is the UAE, and I saw a little bit of Jewish life and how Jewish leadership works and the way it attracts people, Shabbos Yontif, and during the week to be part of the Jewish scene. I, I mean, every one of these communities that I named and you just spoke of, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, each one of them has a completely different level of activity in its own relatively small Jewish community, right? I would guess that some of the countries that are represented by the uh, by the association really have very limited Jewish presence, while others, you know, get much closer to what the UAE has. Uh, um, that's right. I mean, the UAE is always going to have this uh, magnet for tourists. And, and now, as you saw, Nahum, uh Jewish tourists are no exception. Uh, but look, when you're talking about Jews throughout the Gulf. I mean, you're talking about both citizens of countries like in Bahrain. You're talking about uh, expats, uh, as in the case of uh, of UAE. Um, you're also talking about somewhere between 500 to 1,000 U.S. servicemen and women who are stationed on bases. Right. And, um, and we've been working with, uh, with the Jewish Welfare Board 
uh, which is an entity. Many people don't know about it unless you're in the military, but right. it, it, it's, it's really the organization that is making provisions for for Jews throughout the, uh, you know, who are states who are serving the United States of America um, in the military and who are stationed all over the world. And, uh, and the emerging partnership with them uh, is, is just uh, something that we're very proud of. If it's obvious, UAE and Bahrain, two very good examples, at least from our vantage point, we don't know all the inside workings, obviously, but if it's obvious that those communities are going to grow, both tourist-wise, and I think you would you would also agree that you know, in terms of residents, it's very possible these Jewish communities are going to get larger over the next few months and years. Uh, what about the others? I mean, Saudi Arabia, for instance, Kuwait, for instance. I mean, you don't expect an actual growth of the Jewish community in those areas, do you? One of the things I learned is that uh, um, we can't just think about tomorrow. We have to think about the day after tomorrow. Mm. You know, I've been going to the UAE since 2010, January of 2010, wow. when, before NYU opened its campus in Abu Dhabi, before it opened NYU Abu Dhabi. And, and look, I brought with me during that trip uh, Chumash, stone Chumash, which I plan to kind of, uh, you know, Make sure you know stays there. Right. And 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 I wasn't thinking about though is anybody going to use this chumash tomorrow? I was thinking you know maybe someday in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and look, since we've made the announcement, I've had Jews in Saudi Arabia email me out of the blue. This is just a day saying, you know, is there any way I could log on to a Megillah reading? So the answer is we just don't know. We right. just don't know. We we have to operate with what we do know. What we do know is. Um, is that there are there are um, Jewish communities growing in certain countries, and that there may be ones others in other Jew- in other countries that uh, that that may come about. Right. Um, we've also, and I think you know, as we're as we're working to also establish a Beitin, what we're calling the Beitin of Arabia, and look, I've been working closely with uh, people in the European Beitin, which includes the the, the London Besden. And with the Beijing of America, who've been just a tremendous support, they understand that what we're trying to do here is set something up for the long term, not just for tomorrow. You know what I mean? I, I think you need to explain to us why that's important. Uh, you know, many people, you know, uh, I mean, we understand the importance of having, you know, a Jewish cemetery as as uh, as communities grow of uh uh, of an Erev, a mikvah, you know, there are certain things that, were, I mean, some people even joke you need a kosher pizza shop in order for a community to grow. So we understand that. Why is a Bezdin, why is a Bethdin of Arabia so important and vital at this stage? The presence of a Beitin signals that there is a way, there is a path for Jews to live a full life in this country. Wow. Um, you know, I mean, uh, because... First of all, governments need an address of, of uh, for you know a direction for who, to whom to address questions of of is uh, you know how do we ensure that uh, that Jewish life can in fact be practiced, which believe it or not is something that uh, that Muslim countries, Arab countries, Arab governments, contrary to the perception, is something that they care very deeply about, right. and of course the perception is. Uh, that and it's not based on nothing, right? There, there is some grounds for it, but the perception is that that all Arab countries are are uh, uh, only accept one religion, and that's Islam. Mm-hmm. But look, once you have a a, a Beitin which is interacting with 
the ministries of justice or the judicial department, and that there are there can be um, an acceptance of Jewish laws of inheritance, Jewish uh, laws of marriage and divorce, divorce settlement, um, uh, other questions of Jewish uh, registering birth, uh, making sure that uh, that uh, kosher food or other religious items can make their way into the country. Mm-hmm. This is a really important, this really paves the way for a normal Jewish existence in these countries. And, and to the credit of the Bahrain Jewish community, they've had this relationship with, uh, with the Ministry of Justice uh, in Bahrain going back uh, decades, if not more than a century, where the decisions that have been rendered um, for them on behalf of Rabbanim, not ones who are living locally, but, but uh, diaspora Rabbanim, uh, have been accepted, have been stamped by the Bahrain uh, Ministry of Justice, and it's really through that that we are um, that that we are uh, establishing the Beit of Arabia. Such an important thing for people to realize. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna is with us, honorary chair of the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities. In addition, of course, as you just alluded to, there'll be an Arabian Kosher Certification Agency. I'm assuming. The goal is to establish the same standards for all the countries and all the uh, the kashrus work that's being done in all those countries. Uh, I mean, this this could only be to you know for a benefit of the worldwide Jewish community comes to visit these six countries and comes to visit the Gulf region. Do you see already uh, some type of uh, a desire on the part of people uh, in the food industry to become part of this Arabian Kosher Certification Agency? Like it's just not the very beginning. What we do know is that there is intense interest among Jews around the world, Jews in Israel, Jews in Europe, Jews in the United States, uh, to visit the Gulf, to be a part of what's really emerging as a family reunion uh, between between Arabs from a certain part of the world and Jews from other parts of the world, mm. uh, where once upon a time people lived, uh, you know, next door to each other. And um, one of the things that I've seen, especially in the UAE, is this culture of hospitality, of wanting to do just anything to accommodate to make sure that the guests are comfortable. And this is a part of it. I know that um, uh, Rabbi Abadi and uh, Ibrahim uh, Dawood Nunu are ba- both very involved, obviously, in the leadership of the association. Have the board members, have the representatives of each of the six countries been chosen already or not? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we had an amazing Zoom call uh, last week, and uh, with all the board members, you know, the representatives from each of the countries, and it's very powerful. It, it was very emotional, actually. You know, on the one hand, to see see Mr. Nonu, who who um, who was so well established in Bahrain, and then uh, to see others who had you know recently come to the region. Others who've been living undercover as a Jewish person for decades in the Arab world. Right. It was quite dramatic, and and with the announcement coming out yesterday, I have to tell you, Nahum, uh, there may be many things that I'm not optimistic about, uh, but uh, you know, especially given the pandemic and how things have gone. But about this, I'm optimistic. It's not just an optimism, and Rabbi uh, Rabbi uh, Yehuda Sarna is with us uh, live via telephone. It's not just optimism. You know, you, you know your Jewish history, Rabbi Sarna. Um, we know about the era that was very uh, that was very Eurocentric. The Jewish community was very the global Jewish community was very Eurocentric, and of course followed by a period of time that we're in now, where the 
Jewish community was very North American centric. And now, of course, we've seen over the last decade or so where the Jewish community uh, is now so Israel centric, thank God, with, you know, we're approaching the majority of Jews in the world uh, being in Israel. And, and it just seems like there's a, there could be there. Could, and history is tough to, you know, the future is tough to predict. But the way we're going with the leadership that you're providing, it looks like there could be a time soon enough, whatever that means in the context of, you know, years and decades, where the Jewish world is really Middle Eastern centric again. Uh, Again, not to take anything away from our beloved state of Israel, and I always state the future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel, but I think you know what I mean, where the diaspora is going to make a major shift. Do you see that? I think that we are on the precipice of something that we don't know exactly what kind of change it's going to bring. And I think the opening up of boundary of borders between uh, between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain, being able to fly over Saudi Arabia is going to redefine Israeli identity, going to redefine, uh, um, you know, Right now, people typically see the terms Arab and Jewish as as opposite. Right. But I think that's going to start breaking down. Yeah. And I think uh, Israel's identity as a member of the region, as a member of the region, is going to shift. And um, you're already seeing that, by the way, if you read, as I do, um, the newspapers in the UAE. A lot of their news is about Israel. And if you read Israeli media... A lot of their news is about the UAE, right. not just UAE-Israel relations, but Israel had a you know Israeli media had a whole profile on on uh, the the probe, the UAE probe that landed on Mars. Uh, it just it, it opens up uh, it opens up the map in a different way. It does redefine the map. So, and when it comes to the Jewish world, I think look there are many different theories or predictions out there about what it's going to look like. Some people are saying that the UAE is going to be uh, Israel's Florida, if, uh, you know, in, in New York, in a New York-centric terms, you know, because the weather there in the winter is so nice <laughs> right. that there's going to be there's going to be not just seventy thousand Israelis uh, as visited during December, but hundreds of thousands right. of Israelis visiting every winter. That might be. It's going to be that many American Jews who are traveling to Israel, whether for Pesach, I'm already hearing that for Pesach. Or for others are going to say, you know what? I'm already there. Maybe I'll make a stop in the in the UAE. Yeah. Um, from the UAE, it's easy to get anywhere. I mean, the the their airlines go to uh, Arba Kanfotaris. I mean, they mm-hmm. they go all over, and um, and so it's it's opening up trade. It's opening up travel. Uh, it's opening up possibilities for uh, identity. It's 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 enabling a kind of family reunion, which we have not seen in any kind of dramatic way. You know, in our in our in our in our living history. Yeah, I'll tell you. Some people listening right now are rolling their eyes, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, and people asked us what was the most important part of the trip that we took in December, and I said the most important part was the message that I brought back to a lot of people here and around the world, but especially here who grew up with a certain mindset. And I have to say this in a really sensitive way, but I think you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, it, maybe even rightfully so, because of the experience that so many of our parents and grandparents had, maybe even rightfully so, we were brought up in the quote-unquote yeshiva league, as I call it, you know, the modern Orthodox day schools, high schools, uh, 
uh, with a with a certain attitude or atmosphere that there was really no such thing as getting along with Arab communities, that there was a desire among most on the other side of that relationship to, you know, to, to be unfriendly at the least and at the most, unfortunately, you know, want to exterminate Jews. And again, because of the experience of previous generations, I, I can almost excuse that attitude. We go to the UAE, we meet people and, and have that, you know, short experience but fulfilling one where it's obvious that these communities, meaning ours and theirs, can get along and can move forward and can replicate the way Jews and Arab communities got along in centuries past. And I think this move with this announcement yesterday, Association of Gulf Jewish Communities, only adds to that hope and hopefully to that eventuality. Do you get what I mean by the background of how we grew up and how different the future could be. Absolutely. I mean, my first experience, uh, the first time I went to Abu Dhabi was in January 2010 in the shadow of the second Intifada, uh, which had taken the life of my second cousin, sadly, who was killed at a bus stop. Uh, as well, I mean, many of us were experiencing that, that trauma, the second Intifada. And... Um, of my first time in an Arab country, and I, I, I made sure that everywhere I was going, I was with uh, you know some, another colleague from NYU. And I remember once I was in a supermarket in the Carrefour, a French supermarket in uh, in Abu Dhabi, and the person I was with asked if I you know he had to go somewhere else in the store. So he said I'll be back in a second, and I was in the cheese section. I remember looking to see if I could find a hefsher on the Philadelphia cream cheese, <laughs> and and all of a sudden this wave of Fear, the surge of fear came over me yeah. when I realized I was all alone. And I was certain, no, my, this is crazy. I was certain I would get stabbed there and then because I was unguarded. And, and of course, nothing happened. But, but it really did force me to deal with the stereotypes that I had yeah. and the fears that I had and the um, Arabophobia that I had. And it, it, it led me to a changed perception. And yeah. by the way, if you're tracking what's happening in, in Israel, you're seeing that some of the voices, which had previously been, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, anti-Arab, have really moderated as a result of the uh, of the rapprochement. Yeah, good point. You know, I, I think there are exceptions yeah. to that, but I think generally speaking, you're right, and it's significant. And look, and, and, and let me say it in a different way. The bad guys know this. Right. I mean, we, we put out, we put out the, uh, this announcement, and, and you know, the, the, I mean, the bad guys, people who are yeah. opposed to reconciliation at all between Jews. Right. I mean, I only saw negativity on, on, uh, on the, on, among Muslim you know, right. extremist groups. Right. Who came out very harshly against against this? Look, I left but, the UAE. I, I had said that my desire was basically to go to the leadership of the PA and say, guys, you know, wouldn't you love to have this? Wouldn't you love to have all the technology and the future and the building and the and the commerce and and people, you know, citizens getting the health care they need and the money they need and a tremendous, you know, employment opportunities? Wouldn't you just want this? All you need to do is, you know forge a nice relationship and be mentioned with the people on the other side. But I don't Look, think... No, I, I, I got to say something. But, you know, if, if I know our time is limited, but I got to say huh? something. Sure. Leadership is not a function, I believe. It's not a, the task of an individual. It's the task of a generation. Right. And 
And the only way this is going this this uh, grand you know reconciliation, this family reunion is going to happen, is through people to people. Is when is when every single Jewish tourist to the UAE or to other countries treats everyone there with respect. And um, and the way we behave, you know, whether it's in our politics or whether it's in our business or whether it's in our culture or whether it's in our media, it is in a way that signals that we are ready for this. But this is a we. This is not an I. And this is not just about establishing, a, you know, an institution. This is about educating a generation. And for the, for the better of the Jewish people, we really need to lean in to this challenge. Yeah, this, and it's a hard challenge. Yeah. How, how do we leave behind decades of, of animosity yeah. and step and look forward to decades of prosperity? This is a very difficult turn to make. And that's my hope, with, whether it's just about establishing the Jewish community in the UAE, which, you know, I've been, I've been focused on, and I'm very blessed that just last week, actually, the, the Jewish community in Dubai received its official license from, wow. uh, from the, the authorities there which is a major achievement, um, and whether it's about establishing this association, these are vehicles, really, for the transformation of a generation. And it's that challenge that we all need to lean into. And you're a big piece of it. Your, your, your listeners are a big piece of it. I hope that they come and visit, as you did, in, in the footsteps, footsteps of Nahum Ziegel. <laughs> uh, and, and when they come, you know, to make a point, not just of, of eating at the kosher restaurants or going up to, to the, you know, uh, the heights of the Burj Khalifa, but but actually meeting uh, the local population and you and have, and you, have and you have no idea based on our experience how anxious they are to meet, to hear about what a yarmulke is all about, to hear have you ever been to Israel, to hear what is your tradition like compared to ours, uh, and the similarities. Frankly, there's a lot of similarities between you know a lot the, of similarities between their rituals and our rituals, and they like discussing it and having a friendly conversation. And look, I, I know that, again, I know who's rolling their eyes out there. I know it because I was one of them until, until a few months ago. But there's a, really, there's a, lot, of, uh, there's a lot going on, and there, there are uh, trails being blazed, and all of us can be part of it, as Rabbi Sarna just uh, uh, outlined for us. By the way, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just, I mean, if it happens, I mean, What's the of all of all six? Which is the official largest Jewish population? Which is officially the smallest Jewish population of these six? Would you know? Off the- we're we're in the process. Uh, look, the, the UAE is the, is the largest, and um, and this is one of the our hopes about making this association public is that we would have a better sense of right how many people are actually out there. Um, uh, who do you I, I who do you suspect that, is the um, smallest? Who so, do you suspect? So, who do you think is the smallest of these six? Like it's likely which smallest one? I would say as of now is likely Saudi Arabia. Oh wow, interesting. Likely, likely, um, and Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia is. Um, you know, they are. They've made a lot of changes in the past few years, and um, and certainly, uh, I don't know if you saw last year the head of the um, Muslim World League which is a preeminent Islamic uh, organization uh, funded by the Saudis, really, in, to a certain extent, you know, part of the Saudi Arabian government, uh, visited Auschwitz with the HAC, and HAC has done phenomenal, phenomenal work. So there are changes uh, that, are, that are afoot in Saudi Arabia, but as of now, I would say 
that that is the um, that is the smallest Jewish population. Right. But let's see. Let's see. I mean, we're going to see uh, my, my prediction, and this is we haven't started working on this, but my prediction is that we're going to see the um, the the renovation and and uh, and if you will, um, and marking of Jewish cemeteries, which uh, exist throughout the Arabian Peninsula, right. and that is true in uh, in Qatar, uh, sorry, in Kuwait. That is true in uh, in Oman. That is true in Saudi Arabia, uh, where that we know that there are um, there are cemeteries that were there. We don't know their exact condition. Just the opposite. Just the opposite of those who want to wipe out our past. They want to acknowledge our past. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing. That's the amazing thing that you will hear over and over again from uh, from Emiratis and and from other uh, from others in the Gulf is that they feel like uh, because of the Islamist winds that swept the peninsula and drove Jews and Christians uh, off of the peninsula, or, or driving Jews and Christians off of the drove Jews away, but also have driven and 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 in some ways continue to drive Christians off. So many of the now the most forward-looking voices are looking around and saying, "Hey, where did everybody else go?" And a part of our identity, a part of our culture, is being able to spread out a grand Arab tent under which many people can come and rest. And to a certain extent, the the dream of the Islamists of creating quote-unquote, pure societies right. of only Muslims and of only Muslims of a certain type um, has been the thing that is prompting this, uh, this change. I mean, we don't, from over here, we think it's all about us. You know, we think it's all about America. We think it's, or if you're in Israel, we think it's all about Israel. Right. It's not. There's a lot of <laughs> internal dynamics going on. And so this question of where have all the Jews gone is a live question. They read the Quran. They know that Muhammad had Jewish neighbors. Right. You know, they hear the stories from their grandparents. They right. knew that they used to have Jewish neighbors. Right. And what you've seen uh, growing up alongside all these um, social changes is even in, in, um, in, in current um, Gulf literature, uh, cinema, TV, what you're seeing is the emergence of Jewish characters, which are in some way a figment of the imagination, but... More importantly, they're a manifestation of memory. Yeah, these are these are we we to certainly are characters that they that they remember. Yeah, what's old? Not, not not us individually, but they remember us, and and they bemoan the fact that we haven't been there, and that makes them feel like it's uh, an unnatural state. Yeah, what's... And I'm going to say something that might sound a little controversial, but there are um, it's kind of like the the unspoken secret. That there are a good number of people in the Gulf living as living as Muslims who know that they have Jewish ancestry. Wow, interesting. <laughs> they know that they have Jewish ancestry, and I've been getting some of these stories. Oh, is that? Um, and interesting? by the way, it's not just people. In the, it's not just people in the Gulf. It's people from around the Arab world who, you know, for work or for other reasons. Right. Are making their home in the UAE. I mean, that's mostly right. my context. Who will say, you know, can you help me get on birthright? Can you help me get on masak? Can you help me with my, you know, 
amazing, amazing stories. There's even a someone from uh, someone from Saudi Arabia who I met. This is an, an incredible story. Um, whose whose family? His name is Mohammed, but which is obviously a very common name. Um, his family was originally a Yemenite family that 80 years ago, 100 years ago, was on its way, like many Yemenite families, from Yemen to Israel. One branch of the family stopped along the way in Saudi Arabia, and the other branch continued to Israel. And you have this irony of one branch of a family literally uh, almost becomes a member of Knesset, uh, and then another branch uh, are covert Jews living as Muslims in Saudi Arabia. Unbelievable. Rabbi Sarda, I uh, <laughs> maybe after we're both vaccinated or when we reopen the studio to guests, i got to have you in here, uh, which shouldn't be too difficult since we're both in lower Manhattan so often, and we got to continue this conversation. I have so many more questions. But I also look forward to actually being in the Gulf with you because uh, you, may, you may have been the only thing missing, frankly, from our uh, journey there back in December. Congratulations on the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. My pleasure. Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, Honorary Chair of the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities, which was just announced yesterday. And you hear just how significant it is. Pretty amazing. And you are listening to America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Next up, the new head of the uh, FIDF, Friends of the Israel Defense Forces, or by Steve Weil. He was with us recently to discuss his new position. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. At JM in the AM. Well, back in August, the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces, FIDF, announced the appointment of our good friend Stephen Weil as its new national director and CEO to head the charitable organization beginning this past September. And um, this has been our first opportunity to uh, really ask Rabbi Weil about the appointment, and now we get an opportunity to actually speak to him about the first few months in his position as a National Director and CEO of FIDF, Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. Rabbi Stephen Weil, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Oh, it's wonderful to always be on JM and AM, and especially with you, Nachum. It's really a treat and a, and a privilege. I appreciate that very much. Uh, there are some, knowing how brilliant a career you have had in both the rabbinate and in Jewish communal life, there are some who uh, expressed surprise at uh, this move to become the national director and CEO of the Friends of the IDF. Uh, if you could take us back to the summer of 2020, when all this was being decided, what could you tell us about this interesting move? It's, it's interesting. You know, I, I took a number of our significant donors at the OU, I took them to the, to the White House for the Hanukkah party. And there were a few fellows that said they wanted to speak. Yes, yeah, so they, they saw who I was. They came over. I thought they wanted to speak about a Jewish communal issue here in America or a lobbying effort, something to that effect. And, and they really wanted to speak about the future of Israel. And I'll tell you, even though our family, we are supporters of FIDF, you know, in Beverly Hills, we would always participate. 
in New York, I really didn't appreciate what the organization does. This is really about building the future of the Jewish people and the future of Israel. It's, it's about transformational educational solutions that enable every Jew to have a chance to make it in life. If, if they're going to give three years, or four years, or five years of their life, whether it's a young woman or a young man, to the Jewish people, when everyone else is going to college and going to the beaches, well, you know what? We want to make sure that they can give the next 60 years of their life to the Jewish people. This was an opportunity to build Israel. Well, one second. We, we've always been under the impression that FIDF exists um, as a support system for those who are currently in the Israeli army. Are you saying that now there's um, somewhat of a, an expansion or an attention being paid to other areas where FIDF will be there for those soldiers and those uh, enlistees even beyond during the time of their military service? Yes, a major component of what we do, and this is really after strategic conversations, General Amir Eshel, he's the CEO of the Defense Ministry. This is with the, the generals who run the manpower division of the Army. And that is that if someone's willing to give that many years of their life, Israel can't afford a GI Bill. 14.9% of the GDP you, know, you talk about one of the greatest miracles in Jewish history is that the Israeli economy exists when 15% of the GDP goes into military. Right. So they turned to you and I. They turned to the diaspora community and said, let's give these kids a chance after the military. So those who can't afford, and, and the Army has the tax returns of the parents, we fund a free university education with spending money so that they can become an engineer, they can live the startup nation dream, they can become a nurse, a doctor, whatever it is that they want to become, they can support a family and they can build the Jewish people. And that's, this, one, that's one aspect of the kind of transformational you know, educational solutions that we provide to build Israel and build the Jewish world. And this is new, you're saying. In other words, what I described in terms of how the FIDF has been, in my opinion, brilliantly supporting both lone soldiers and soldiers in general with whatever is necessary, whether it's material, whether it's uh, educational material, whether it's recreational events, etc. They've been doing that really well. You're, you're saying this is now an additional focus of the organization. Well, it's actually, it started about 18, even though the organization's 40 years old, this, this direction started 18 years ago. But in terms of the, the upper echelons, I'm talking about Avid Kochavi, I'm talking about Amir Eshel, the, the high upper echelon of the army, this is their first priority. Because it's a Jewish army. A Jewish army is invested in, in every neshama. It's invested in every young man and every young woman. That It's not just about defending the state of Israel. It's about giving them the opportunity to help build the Jewish world above and beyond their experience as they move past their army experience. So that, That's very crucial. Uh, Stephen Weil is with us, new national director of the FIDF. So now when I read that the 2021 fundraising priorities of the Friends of the FIDF are number one, education, number two, financial relief, and number three, the well-being needs of the soldiers throughout their IDF service, uh, that is a new order to the list of priorities. I'll tell you the one that's a new order is the financial relief COVID is devastating. Actually, it's not just COVID. It's the three quarantines that have to be deemed that have destroyed Israel. Israel was doing fantastically well with 3.8% unemployment. 
the, the official number today is 21.75, wow. but that doesn't include people who are self-employed. It's over 25%. It's right. devastating. And unlike America, they can't just print money for bailouts the way right. we can here. Right. So uh, just to give you statistics, on an average over the last six years, We've supported financially 8,000 soldiers who come from families under the poverty line. You know what the number was last month? I'm sorry, two months ago it was 29,100. This month we're at 35,000. Wow. There are 35,000 soldiers that are either under the poverty line or in Israel they refer to it as the gray zone. That means they're hovering just at or just above poverty. So we're trying to raise funds to give them food relief. When they go home every second or every third weekend from the, the combat unit, they have these cards, which you know, they're very dignified because no one knows that no one knows it's food stamps. It's, it looks like a credit card, and it can only be used in the supermarkets. We put funds into their bank account because their parents, based upon the relief they're getting from the government, can't pay the utility bills, can't pay the rent. So the idea is that the diaspora jewelry during this miserable economic time Hopefully we can just get them over the hump. So it's always been in some ways a life-saving organization, uh, FIDF. Now it's much more of a life-saving organization. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a tragedy, you know, what, what's happening financially to people in Israel. It's, it's devastating right now. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, now you've been in this position for, you know, almost six months. Um, I've always been impressed and I've been a big, big FIDF guy. I mean, I, I've gone with my children to dinners and we've made pledges publicly as the, as is the habit of the, at the FIDF dinner. And I have seen tables of people, you know, uh, those who have no, you know, Jewish ritual background, but are of course, you know, brothers and sisters of ours. And at the same table, uh, uh you know, a Hasidic man wearing a Strymon. I'm not kidding when I say that. I saw that at a Saturday night FIDF dinner. The reason, of course, is because his son was in the Israeli army and had he had tremendous appreciation of what FIDF was doing for him. So the diversity and the brotherhood in that crowd is simply amazing. My question is, with these tough times, and we know what it's like here also, not just in Israel, in the last six months, have you seen a response from American Jewry? Have have we been able to keep up with the needs of the FIDF financially during these difficult times? No, not at all. In fact, 2020 relative to 2019 was a real down year, as it was in many places. Now, what we're doing is we've started something called FIDF Live, trying in real quality, telling the stories of multiple different soldiers, of really giving you a multifaceted look at Jewish life, trying to reach out to people in a time when it's hard to have face-to-face meetings. We're raising, on the one hand, a ton of money to help the soldiers, but unfortunately, members are down relative to 2019, number one. And number two is the problem is the needs are exacerbated. I'll give you a simple example. Many of these young kids, not necessarily with your kid or my kid, but many of them, because of the huge pressure of the army, they'll go to Brazil, they'll go to India, just, just to you know, whine, just bleed, so to speak, for six months, eight months. They go to places where they can backpack on the cheap. There's no one traveling during COVID. Right. So instead of us having 8,000 soldiers to provide a full scholarship to, this year it's 11,300, just to give you an example. And these are all kids who are in combat units, 
who are lone soldiers or and as well come from a family that is just can't afford right. financially can't afford the college tuition. Oh, I hear so that. Things are challenging, but you know what? We're the Jewish people and there's going to be a better day. We're going to come out of COVID. And we're going to build. We're going to build Israel. Right, um, Rabbi Steve Wiles with us. I, I don't know if um, it, to the point I was making before, which I sort of glossed over about the makeup of those who are supporters. Um, I don't know if if everybody in this audience. I mean, we're, we're speaking to thousands of people right now, and you know their basic makeup. We know we know the average makeup of the people listening right now. And I don't know if they are as committed or feel the need to be as committed to FIDF as members of other segments of the Jewish community. Uh, Now that you're there, has there been already or do you anticipate an increased awareness among the Orthodox segment of the community about how important it is to support organizations like yours that support Israel soldiers? Yeah, we've the organization historically has not necessarily spoken to the broader Orthodox community, right. both what I call the Yeshivish, the Hasidish, or the Modernish community. Right. And the reality is, and I don't say this because I'm associated with it, if you had one dollar that you were going to spend on building Israel, it should go to the FIDF right. for a very simple reason: we take care of the Luchnis. I give you an incredible program that we, that we fund. It's called Be'igvut HaChashmonaim, in the footsteps of the Maccabees. It's reliving Jewish history. It's reliving the Masorah. It's reliving the values in the places where it took place. So what's incredible about this army, it's a Yiddish army, it's a Jewish army, because it's all about building the Shamos. It's not just about defending the country. That, that's why during the Bidud, who's giving the pharmaceuticals and the food to people in B'nai Brak? Never, ever before has the relationship between the Haredi community, the Arab community, and the IDF been it's at an all-time high? Because it was these young kids who were giving from, from the gemachen, from the soup kitchens, they were giving Pesach meals to people who were, were homebound during quarantine. Mm-hmm. And this is happening now during this past quarantine as well. So in, in that sense, it's really a Yiddish army, and it's something that our people, meaning the Fum community, really can connect to on a spiritual level, on a financial level, and also building the shamos and, and building our future together. And I don't mean to suggest, God forbid, that anybody would ever do this, but I think it's important to point out, uh, the, mo- the more we please God, and as I say proudly, I have been involved over the years, so I could, you know, I could speak from a little point of experience. Uh, the more we get involved, I-, I think it will only strengthen uh, those from all segments of the community that get involved. Um, when when there is a common Zionist principle um, uh, uh, throughout uh, Jewish communities and throughout Jewish families of this country, and you know this, you've served in so many different areas of this country, it, it is a very difficult bond to break. Some might think, oh, you know, now that now that there's an appeal to the to, to the Orthodox community to be involved, maybe it might affect the Hollywood community, or maybe it'll turn off other parts of the community. But if there's one thing I've learned from organizations like yours, it, people appreciate the fact that there is this common bond that many people, even outside of modern orthodoxy, because many of us think it's only exclusive to us, even outside of modern orthodoxy, have done a tremendous job raising their children on the principles of Zionism. 
And I think that that's something that, you know, we can build on in terms of attracting more and more people to become involved in the organization. Absolutely. I'll tell you, you talk about bringing people together. These are, these are, they're not small financially. They're small in terms of the greater needs. Because of COVID, you can't have Kriyasa Megillah of 400 people or 350 people. They have to spread them out. So they turned to us. They, they needed hundreds of new Megillahs just in order to have a Prius Megillah on these army bases right. so that there could be proper spacing. So it wasn't just the from people. We raised, we raised tens of thousands, I'm talking about $75,000, just to get Kusher and Megillahs so they could have a Prius and Megillah. I'll give you another example. Yeah. Dry, dry fit Tzitzios. Now, again, I don't know about you, Nachum, I'm not at the point in my life where I'm working out and shifting that much anymore. <laughs> but the but soldier, the soldiers are. <laughs> so they're, they're, they need tens of thousands of pairs of dry fit sitios. And you know what's fascinating? It's not just the from people who are paying for it. And the same thing goes for the education. The, the whole the Yiddish education that these kids are getting in the army. You have no idea how it turns them into Jews, into thoughtful, thinking Jews. It's not just the from. It's everyone who believes in that. You know, and, you're, and that's what's beautiful. It brings clients. Oh, I'm, I, I'm thrilled to I'm thrilled to hear this, and I hope it does get more people from our community involved. It, it, most most don't realize the uh, the um, areas of Jewish education and Jewish ritual that that you're involved with. Frankly, D- do the numbers intimidate you? And the reason I say it is because FIDF is known for bringing in a tremendous amount of fundraising from, you know, really unique sources, including, you know, Hollywood and uh, the the many different financial communities of New York City. I mean, we're talking about some real serious numbers. Uh, I don't know how easy it is, if it's easy at all, you know, to maintain that or to match what's been done in past years, especially now, as you mentioned, during COVID. Is that intimidating for you? Is that something that you think you can build on and increase even more? Well, look at what we did at the OU. When I came and we brought in Alan Fagan and we brought in a team, we were raising not quite, maybe six, $700,000 a year. Today for Yachad, NCSY, we built that up to over $40 million. Wow. It's not simple to go from almost zero to that. Give Yisrael, whether it's from, non-from, you know, this is something we do. We make the case and we speak. And what's beautiful about FIDF, you're connected to the soldiers. You have real relationships with them because you're adopting young, men, young Jewish women, young Jewish men. And, and the, the nachas that people get, no matter where you are on the scale, politically, religiously, the connection of Jew to Jew, that's really what's, what's so special about FIDF. You know, you have, you have a unique uh, circle of support. I, I alluded to this already. Uh, I mean... As an example, Chaim Saban is known as somebody who's, you know, outwardly supportive of FIDF. Are there other people that we would have heard of that you've met with or you've spoken to already in your position who we might be shocked or surprised that FIDF is a major priority for them? Yes. I don't, unless I have permission from a donor to publicly share their name, I can't. But, but you would be shocked, both in terms of the industries, the people, and also their commitment and their passion. We're talking whether it's technology, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's industry, whether it's finance, 
and in the backgrounds, their connection to Judaism, it's literally from one end to the other. Isn't it's the that, most beautiful thing. Isn't that funny? Because you're dealing with you know, you're dealing with certain areas of entertainment and, and you know, life, you know, life in America where where you'd think they'd be hesitant to support the Israeli army. You know, we, we know what the reaction is on campuses when people when when kids find out that their colleagues in class are officially members of the IDF. I know of cases where they simply won't speak to that person anymore. You'd think that a lot more of that, especially in this cancel culture and, you know, where the Israeli army is not exactly the number one um, favorite of so many uh, because of the way it's viewed incorrectly in the media. Uh, you, so th- you, you hit the nail on the head. I'll, I'll tell you one story that's reflective of that, and then I'll share with you specifically what we're dealing with. I can't use the name because I don't have permission, but Chaim Saban told me the story. He went to a famous, I'm talking about a world-class famous designer who everyone's wife knows, happened to be a child of survivors. And one of the programs we do is we bring commanding officers because they have to instill the values of Judaism, of Jewish history, of why we're in Israel. They bring them for a week to Poland, experience Auschwitz, Treblinka, a thousand years of Ashkenaz, and then they go back to Israel. And he asked this person who was a child of survivors, of an Auschwitz survivor, would she be interested in helping us fund this program? So she says, let me understand this. And he showed her a video. You know, this is Chaim Saban. This is not, right. you know, Rabbi Steve Weil, who's representing an organization. This is a peer. Right. So she said to him, let me understand something. You bring your commanding officers to Poland, to Auschwitz, so they can learn everything that the Nazis did to us, so they can go back to Israel, and they can act as Nazis and do the same thing to the Palestinians. <laughs> can you imagine that? That was her response. <laughs> yes, you are. You are. Fi- you are fighting a battle on many fronts, Rabbi Weil. <laughs> In terms of that, and I think many of on this call probably know the name Lior Rusi. Lior sold his company Strativity, and he's one of the incredible volunteers that is giving literally labor nefesh to us. Right. We've been working with with some very significant marketing people, with a language that speaks to someone who's anti-military, who's not anti-Jewish, but maybe anti-Israel. This is to that population. Look at what we do. We don't fund machine guns or combat boots. All that we do are transformational educational solutions for, for every aspect of Israeli society, the weakest and the most challenged, and on the other hand, the most gifted in everything in between. And we used language, and that, that, I guess, is probably not for this conversation, but the language that we use of unification, because what blows them away is, unlike America, where people can't talk to each other, if this one's progressive and this one's conservative, they hate each other and they can't speak to each other. Right. Not so in Israel. The Ethiopian, the, the, the Moroccan, the, the Persian, the South African, the Ukrainian all have to be in the same bunk. Yeah, and they, they don't agree with each other, but they learn to live with each other. You know, I never thought of that. You may be right. The division that the division that we always give credit to Israel for might be greater in this country now than in Israel. You're actually, I never thought of that, but it, it's probably true at this point. You, you can't have a normal conversation with somebody on the other side of the aisle in this country at this point, and in Israel, at least that I think you could still have. There was a great conversation. It wasn't for a Jewish audience. Chief Rabbi Sachs or so. He was on, it was a Google, they had this, this forum, and it was really 
the, the audience were, were Europeans. And they asked them, they said, you know, you're a man of theology, a man of philosophy. We, we hear in America the terrible polarization and the hatred between people of different political backgrounds. It's, it's the case in Western Europe. Are there any solutions? Do you have any, do you have any thoughts? He said, yeah, he said, everyone should be looking at Israel. So he used the word national service, which is what the IDF is. He said, that national service model is what unifies people. They don't agree with each other. They learn to live with each other. They learn to exist with each other and respect each other despite their differences. And and as you pointed out, to the credit of the Haredi community, it's it's, it's a different attitude now than it was, which is, you know, very helpful. I mean, we've got to give credit where credit is due. and. The reality is that as more of their community goes to serve and as more of their community shows appreciation to soldiers, you know, it, it is, it's obviously a lot different than it was. I, 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 know, I know we have a long way to go, but it, it's different than it was, Baruch Hashem. I, and I can tell you, because we fund Nachal Haredi and we fund their housing. Right. We have some great people, David Hager, Steve Rosedale, Henry Orlinsky are some of the leaders in, in that. And I have to tell you that the numbers are going up. And the number of Muslims going, not Druze, Druze was always a high percentage right. industry. Right. The number of Muslims is going up about 6 to 7% a year, every year. It's a total trajectory. The, the Abraham Accords is very, very powerful. Right. It's actually having right. an impact on the Israeli-Arab Muslim community. No question about it. All right, Rabbi Steve Weil, he is the new national director and CEO of the FIDF, Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. I want to call your attention, folks, to the 2021 fundraising priorities for the FIDF. You can go to their website, FIDF.org, FIDF.org, and you'll see that um, education, financial relief, and the well-being needs of soldiers are the three priorities that they have uh, in the near future. And everybody out there, I hope, takes an interest in the great work of the FIDF. I don't know why it took so long to get you on the air after your appointment, but I'm so glad you're with us this morning. And I, I'm going to say to you, and my, my friends in Jersey, I, I, FIDF know this. I made the commitment to them years ago, and I've always maintained it. And now I'm certainly anxious to um, to declare this on the national level as well. Uh, you have carte blanche here, uh, Stephen Weil. Uh, whatever I can do to help, to, especially in the Orthodox community, whatever I can do to help to spread the word about all the programs. And, and once we're post-COVID and this studio reopens up to guests, I hope you'll sit across from me and we'll be able to go through all the programs that FIDF is responsible for because there's tremendous growth potential, great interest around the country. I think just like Nefesh Benefesh and, and Birthright, I think there are people in this country who are clamoring to get involved in a serious Zionist organization that helps build the state of Israel. People of all backgrounds, people from people who, who unfortunately not all their relatives are Jewish to people who are, you know, uh, it, it's Haredi. I'm telling you, I think there's a tremendous common bond in there. So this door is always open to you. And uh, what can I tell you? I thank you very much for joining us this morning. Is there, is there anything else? You, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah, can, can we speak about something that actually is not the focus of FIDF, but might be interesting for the listeners? Please. This is a, just a little military. If you look at the last hundred years of war. There was always this principle that whoever controlled the skies would, by definition, control the ground battle. Right. In, in the miracle of 67, right. that first hour and a half on June 5th, had we not taken out the Egyptian MiGs, the Russian MiG jets that were sitting on the Egyptian Air Force bases, we would have lost that war. Right. And that ultimately is what enabled 
the Israeli ground forces, both against the Jordanians, against the Syrians, and against the Egyptians, because they had air support. Well, that was the opposite in 73. When, when the Egyptians and the Syrians had this, those Russian SAM missiles, the surface-to-air missiles that took out the Israeli aircraft, that ultimately caused terrible casualties, and we almost lost Israel in 73. Right. Wars changed. Today, whoever controls cyber, it's not whoever controls the air controls the battle. Right. Whoever controls cyber controls the battle. And that's both on the offensive and on the defensive. And today in the IDF, you've got thousands of kids. And eventually they become the startup nation. Eventually they become Waze and they become Google and they become this and they become that. But where do they get their start? They get their start defending the nation. And I say this without any exaggeration, beleaguerisma, every day thousands of attempts against Israel. Some of them come from young hackers, most of them, but many of them come from Iran. They're very sophisticated and very talented attempts to just destroy the whole infrastructure of Israel's banking system, its governmental systems, its water system, its grid. So cyber defense and cyber offense is what is going to shape any battle that comes up. And please God, we don't have it, but, but let's not kid ourselves. We've got to be prepared. Lebanon's got 150,000 rockets on right. our northern border. Right. Iran is preparing for the day. They're developing these ICBMs to hit any place in Israel with chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. It's a dangerous world. And, and the IDF is not the IDF of 25 years ago. Right. It, it's, a, it's a 21st century idea. I, uh, I can't thank you enough for pointing this out. And, and it's funny because... Uh, and I think if I think about the majority of soldiers that I'm either related to or know right now in the Israeli army, they are in exactly uh, the position that you're describing. And that is so important and so vital for our future. Can't thank you enough. Like I said, open door for you, Stephen Weil. And I hope you have tremendous success in this position and you really grow the organization to the point that it helps more and more and more of our dear Israeli soldiers. Well, thank you. And all those who have all those who have lone soldiers out there. This year, we've committed $5 million to lone soldiers from all over the world just to enable them that their transition and their aliyah should be successful, their army experience should be successful, and please keep sending your sons and daughters and build the Jewish future with us together. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Five minutes after 8 o'clock, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Steve Weil, who now leads the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. That does it for this week's edition of JM Rewind. Thanks so much for tuning in. More coming up. Keep it here at the Nahum Siegel Network.